Welcome to Left on Red, the Daily Mountain Eagles political history podcast. I'm Jennifer Coron. And I'm Drew Gilbert. And the interview we have with you today is with the delightful Mary Jolly, a former assistant to Congressman Carl Elliott. Uh, we went down to Tuscaloosa and had what I thought was a great visit with Mary. We probably could have hung out a while, but we had other things to get back to, you specifically. But Mary, yeah. we could have just hung out and just talked to Mary yeah, for a while. Yeah, I wish we'd have had more day. Um, have you ever, in all of our years of knowing one another, seen me shut up for that long? Mm-mm, no. That's how impressive Mary was for me. She mm-hmm. just couldn't. And we didn't, you know, it's not even tip of the iceberg what mm-hmm. we got in, in this interview. But she's lived so much life, and she was around so many things and around so many people that meant so much. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not just talking about, like, here in Walker County because it was, you know, our congressman. Mm-hmm. The impact that that man had on our country, and then she's just right there in the trenches with right. him. And, oh, my goodness. Um, she, it was a good spot for political nerds to be. Mm-hmm. I know that. She... Um, so she and I had talked before, but one thing you're going to hear in this interview, and I really tried to do, Mary is always asked to talk about Carl Elliott, mm-hmm. to tell the same stories about Carl Elliott again and again and again. And she did wonderful things for Carl Elliott, and Carl Elliott did wonderful things for the country. But Mary had a way more uh, productive and interesting life, I feel like, after she left the Absolutely. congressman than yeah. before. And she's so rarely asked to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm excited that you're going to be able to hear Mary's story as much as anything else. Also, I would just like to point out, because you may notice the audio is a little different from how we normally do it. We were asked to do this as a oral history interview. Uh, I don't think the Walker Area Community Mount Foundation would mind me saying that they're the ones who are asking the Daily Mountain Eagle to do some of those things. So that's why there's not a lot of back and forth with Mary like there is with some of our other guests because we were trying to just ask a question, let Mary answer it, and then move on to the next question. Uh, and then we pulled some of that audio for the podcast. So if it sounds a little weird to your ears, and I think for this first episode, um, I'm asking all the questions, and in the next episode you'll hear Drew asking the questions. We kind of um, hand it off. Well, again, referencing the Drew shutting up for a long period of time. Right. Um, which is not normal. Right. So uh, so that's why the audio sounds that way. But here's that interview with Mary. So you and Congressman Elliott grew up similar circumstances. Your families weren't wealthy, but there was that emphasis on education and public service. So tell me how those experiences growing up, you in Sumter County and him in Franklin County, affected both of you and the work that you did throughout your lives. Well, I really think it, it uh, took a similar path. I remember Carl always talked about his own parents and how much his family had meant to him. Well, the same, I have the same story. My mother was a nurse. She was a professional nurse, graduated from Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa in 1914. And when she married my father, she was the only person in South Sumter County where I was living, where I grew up, she was the only medical professional around, and so if anybody died or anybody got born or sick, she was called on to go help. And so she was gone a lot and left me with some very wonderful uh, black women who helped to raise me. And then my father was a farmer, but he lived through the Depression, uh, as we all did there, and. Uh, as, as the Roosevelt New Deal program became alive, he was on all kinds of agriculture committees and he was the 
president of the REA co-op. He organized the co-op that brought electricity to our farm. So I, I had that example of them always doing something in the community that would make life better for all of us. So I think it was my parents who, who instilled that into me, and it was just part of my life of, uh, you know, you helped your neighbors, and we had to go collect for the Red Cross and pick up iron when, when uh, World War II came along. We were saving scrap iron and finding aluminum and, you know, using the ration cards. We, would, we thought we were being pretty patriotic. And, of course, my mother, we had a long picture of her, a large frame, uh, where in World War One she was a nurse, had volunteered and was in the Army. And General Pershing came through the uh, barracks in New Orleans where she was, and uh, she's standing at attention. So I have my mother with a little group of nurses and this great general and all those soldiers around. So. And tell me about Congressman Elliott and the importance. His family were tenant farmers, and yes. he told me um, when we interviewed a few years ago that when he would come home from Washington, he would often say, I have to get back to Franklin County. There was something there that rooted him. So talk to me about how his sense of place rooted him as well in his career. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, that was very evident when he, he, he and, and that always reinforced what I had learned in my own growing up years, to see his rootedness with his family, which has lasted even until this day. The third generation of these Elliott people get together uh, there about 42 of them came down here when they, op they brought the uh, Profile and Courage Award to the university, came here to uh, be a part of that ceremony. And it was just like they were discovering him all over again. You had to realize that they were just growing up mere little children when he was in Congress. But here they are, and they're learning about him in ways that they had never known before. Tell me the story about him leaving for the University of of Alabama. He graduates high school at, at 16. Um, there aren't a lot of educational opportunities. He leaves for the University of Alabama on foot. Tell me that story. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Denny was a very big promoter of the university, and he had been to Franklin County, and his uh, Carl's parents and Carl himself had heard him make a speech in which he said, that he hoped that, that people would come to the university because they could get a good, good education. But he also had a, a, a letter-writing project. He wrote to every rising senior in the state of Alabama. He got their names and addresses and wrote, to, wrote them a letter as they entered the 12th grade saying, you know, come to the university, consider this university as a place to get to further your education. So Carl took that... Literally, <laughs> he thought it meant him, so he planned to come. And he, he and his friend, who was a, a man named Nix, uh, Mr. Nix, who was also in that community, they, they started walking together down the railroad track, and he had $2.38 in his pocket that he had gotten when he worked at, the, worked at a sawmill during the summer. That's all the head left. And everything that they brought with them was in a cardboard box under their arms, and there they were, walking to Tuscaloosa. So a local store manager there, owner, saw them and wanted to know where they were going, and he, they said they were going to the university. He said, well, you can't get there that way. He said, let me see if I can't 
find the local preacher and I'll send him down there in my car and take you guys down there. So that's what happened. So when they got here, they had no, he, he said, we didn't write in advance and believe it or not, you didn't have to apply for admission in those days to college, you just showed up. So they showed up and went up and walked into the president's office and said, we're here to go to school. So he, you know, he talked to them a little and found out that they didn't have any resources with them and he encouraged them to go back home and work and come back in a couple of years and they didn't have any way to get home. So they went to sleep that night under a truck, just found a place to bed down when it started raining and they slept on the ground for about three nights and then they finally found an abandoned building and they just camped out and went into that building, hoping that nobody would find them there. So they did get discovered ultimately, but that's how he started. He just was determined not to go home. He was coming here to go to college. And I think the great lesson in all that is that, um, well, there were a lot of lessons in it, but one thing that, that motivated him to go to Congress was to do something about the issue of poor people not having a chance to get a college education. Now, it was in the Depression years, and you know nobody had much money, but uh, he said that, that he felt like he made it through because he had a lot of physical stamina, he knew how to work, and he didn't mind working, and he was determined, and he really was hungry to be educated, and he saw that as his way out of poverty, that that's what he had to do to, to get there. And he also said that while he was able to do that, he, for everyone like him that got through, he saw 10 who didn't make it. And, you know, they just had to quit and go home or just didn't, couldn't, couldn't stand the pressure of trying to exist and, and learn at the same time. So let's fast forward to when you two meet. You attend the university as well, and you end up as a music teacher at uh, Cold Springs High School, which is somewhat close to us. Yeah. And uh, as I understand it, it's 1948, which is the time when he's running for Congress for the first time. So uh, where did you two meet in 1948? Well, we met at Cold Springs Baptist Church <laughs> up on, Go on Cold Springs Mountain, right up the mountain from Bug Tussle. Yeah. That was a fun time for me. I enjoyed working there. And, I, you know, he was the first candidate I'd ever met running for an office like that. And it, um, may, But he had a physical presence. When he walked in the room, you knew somebody had walked in the room. It, you could feel it. It just, uh, he, he had charisma about him that just, you took note of him. I remember, uh, you probably don't remember seeing a, electric light hang down on a long cord with a little single bulb in it. Well, that was kind of the lights they had at the church. And I thought when he walked in, I thought he's going, his head's going to hit that light. Because <laughs> he was six feet four inches tall and it was it had a low ceiling. But he was an impressive man and he knew what to do with an audience. I, I can't remember everything he said, but I, I remember it was just a brief interlude where he introduced himself and said that he was running for Congress and what he'd like to do, and he hoped that we were going to vote for him. So, And you didn't go to work for him until several years later, and I don't know this story, so tell me how you came to work for him. 
Well, I had been to Washington working for a, a congressman from here. Well, shortly after, I, I need to back up further than that. Right after I finished, um, finished my two years at Cold Springs, I still had two years of college to go to. So I came here to the university and finished here. And then I had tuberculosis when I was 22 years old. And I thought that was the end of my life, that, you know, there was no cure for it. And when you have that, you, they, you become a ward of the state. They had state TB hospitals all over the state on a regional basis. So I had to go to the one in Birmingham. That's where I was sent. And uh, I didn't think I would ever have to do anything but just wait my time there and it'd be over. But anyway, they were doing an experiment with uh, streptomycin, which was one of the antibiotics, and uh, I got to take that drug, and within three months, I was out of there and back home and uh, getting well, and it just was a miracle. It's really the thing that did away with tuberculosis in this state. So that kept up, that took, what, three years of my life or something? Anyway, I went to work for him when I was 50, it was 1955, and uh, he called me. Uh, I had planned to go back to teaching, and uh, he called me and said, would you come to Jasper? And so I said yes, and so he offered me a job, and I s thought about it, and I remember that I would make $4,000 a year. I mean, that was a huge salary. I was going to be teaching for about 1500 I think, <laughs> so I thought I was going to get rich. But anyway, that, uh, I, went, I had that interlude in my life that uh, was life-changing in many respects. Yeah. Now, what did he hire you to do? What was the job that you he, took with him? He, he wanted me to be his legislative assistant. I was to read the bills, keep up with the legislation, uh, and that meant reading the record every day, sometimes going to committee hearings. But then when we would come... He, he also explained that we'd be in Washington part of the year and back here part of the year because he always opened an office in Jasper when, when the Congress was not in session. So I would come home then with him. So I got to be a citizen of Jasper. I really lived in Jasper, Alabama. I joined the Methodist choir there. I sang in the Method, First Methodist Church choir. I lived with... Um, there were two elderly women there whose husbands were dead, and they would let me have a room. I lived on Delo, on Florida Avenue with uh, Mrs. Buell Douglas, and then with on Alabama Avenue with Miss W. T. Kelly, and uh, just had a, you know, I would go out working all over the district during the daytime or in the office, but uh, I sort of had a. I bought my first car in Jasper, Alabama from Carl Price. I made my first loan. I used to tell John Oliver that he taught me how to go in debt all my life. <laughs> so I did, that was kind of some growing up years for me. Oh, and I took a, I had a, a Dale Carnegie course. Let me tell you a story about Jasper, though. I, I get a kick out of this thinking about it now. 
I was told that, you know, that I need to be out in the community and be letting people talk to me, and if they needed the congressman to help, I'm to figure out how we can help get what they need done. So I thought, I heard everybody talking about the coffee table up at People's Drugstore. So I thought, that's where you go to find out what goes on in Jasper. That kind of, you know, if you'd meet somebody, they'd say, well, what, what's on the table at the coffee shop today? What was going on? So I took myself to the coffee shop. So I, I mean, to the drugstore and go to the coffee table. It was a big round table, sat right in the middle of the store. And, they, and all men sitting there drinking coffee. So I sat down, and one by one, they sort of got up and drifted away. So finally, there was just me left there. <laughs> they had all gone. And what I learned was that they did, women were not a part of that culture. You didn't sit down at that coffee table when those men were drinking coffee because they didn't want women around hearing what they said, I guess. So I learned my lesson on that. Now, those, those kind of things. But then I had a, a Dale Carnegie course. I went to Dale Carnegie course at night. And everybody had a nickname, so I remember Ellis Taylor was called uh, Black Diamond because he had this coal mine, so we'd meet on the street, and everybody called me Senator. That was my nickname, so. Now, I understand that you traveled extensively for him, I assume, throughout the district. Talk to me about traveling for him, uh, yes, as a female in this particular time, and what types of issues were on people's minds? What were you... Uh, what types of issues were you handling for him to connect him to the constituents? What was going on at the time? Well, a couple of them were libraries and schools. So we visited a lot of those. We would, he, he never went into a town that he didn't go to the library and get to know the people and hear about needs. And then we did the same thing at schools. We'd make and, and I, I really think he did a good job of teaching civics lessons. We'd just get the whole school, and he'd talk about this district and what he was doing in Congress and, you know, what he hoped to achieve. And, and if they had questions, you know, he would do question and answer. But you get all kinds of problems. Um, I remember going to Summerton and helping them get a city water project one time. Going to Hamilton getting them into the poverty program when that passed, uh, organizing the Bear Creek watershed so we could get enough money to build some dams. And we have to do what I call your homework, and uh, that's still true. These federal programs come into being, but if you aren't organized at the local level and know how to access all of the red tape that you have to go through to get the money, then, you know, it doesn't do you any good. So when he would vote for something, Hilburton Hospitals, the housing projects, we built those all over that 7th District. Uh, little hospitals now closing, so. Were you received well um, oh, yeah. in, in the district? That kind of an anomaly, the, oh, the coffee yeah. table experience? Oh, yeah. So yeah. nobody had a problem with you coming up? No, and... I never, no. Uh -uh. In fact, he, he sent me one time, there was, I've forgotten now what the issue was, but I remember he said, Mary, I need you to go to Rimlap and work on this. And I didn't know where Rimlap was. It's in Flint County, I found out. I had to get the map to get there. But he would say, you just go over there and figure out how we can work through that. And when you get through, come on back. But don't come back until you get the thing solved. <laughs> so 
I have to go land on my feet. He used to say that I had a good uh, a quality about me that I landed on my feet. So he didn't hesitate to send me. So let's talk about his two signature pieces of legislation, the role that um, you played in helping with them, and also set the scene for me. So let's talk about the libraries first and the right. need that existed and what, uh, what that piece of legislation did. Well, of course, the, the, the statistically, when you looked at, at the picture, the big picture, though, there were just rural counties that didn't have any library service whatsoever. And Alabama was way, way behind. This was true of the whole nation in rural areas. It was also true that the federal government had never supported libraries in any, in any degree, except the Library of Congress. They had that in Washington. So he fashioned a program along with Lister Hill where they would provide a minimum sum. The whole thing was more than, not more than $5 million, I think, was the first appropriation. Then it went to seven, and then went on up from there. But it was designated for rural areas, and there was a definition of rural, which fit all of the counties in, in the Carl's 7th Congressional District. So they just passed the bill <laughs> and got it done. Uh, and, and, you know, the bookmobile then became the vehicle that, that was used to get books. You'd have a central library, just like you have in Jasper now, the Carl Elliott Regional Library, and then it would make rounds through all the other counties in the district. And then when you, when you finally got that done, then years later they were able to morph into more substantial funding for libraries. Do you know any single story, and I know there are several in his book, but does any story stand out to you from some of these individuals who lived in his district who told him personally what it meant to them to be able to get to that bookmobile, to be able to get to those, uh, to get to the books and take oh, yeah. them home? What did it mean? What, what stories did you hear about that? Well, the one I remember the most was that he met a, a man who was in his 80s who said he needed to know something about space. He kept hearing about it, and he wanted to know something about it, so he wanted a book on space. But there were lots and lots of stories of people who just had never had access to a library. I mean, they were old and young and all ages, and of course the state librarian did a good job of implementing it here. They, they really got going with it right away. So Now the National uh, Defense Education Act set the scene for me there, both the need and the fact that he had consistently introduced that legislation and it did not get anywhere for over a decade and was opposed even when he was working on it. Yeah, so yeah. give me some of that background yeah. on the National Defense Education Act. Well, uh, first of all, when, you, when you're trying to plow new ground with, with legislation, you have to do a big job of educating. You have to educate members of Congress. You have to educate, uh, first of all, you have to educate yourself. And I think he was, I think that was one of Carl Elliott's great strengths. He never legislated or did anything in legislation that he didn't know some background information. He just dug it up and he had the Library of Congress that he could call on for help. And that, I was kind of the liaison between Carl and the library and the people over there that he would ask to look up and write papers for us. They would do that. Um, 
so he had he he became educated himself about what that let him know what might be possible if you look at the history and the precedents and what had happened up to that point and you want to take something further or do something new you have to have some basis on which to build it so he did it himself he got it himself educated then you have to educate the congress then you have to educate the public and and those two kind of go together so at the beginning of the NDEA we actually were in the, on the west in the far west I think South Dakota holding hearings and that's one thing that a congressman can do he can get out and go find people go find experts go talk to people and get testimony and you know have a real congressional proceeding out in the field so we did a lot of that and my job was to get that organized and so I would go in advance and find people, find places, find who knew, who knew what and who should we call on and how do we find them. So I would put that together. And while we were there then, Sputnik went up while we were in the West holding these hearings. So we immediately came back because he saw that as an opportunity. Uh, people got afraid of it, you know, they didn't know what it was and... Some people poke fun at it, including members of Congress. You know, who cares? There's a low ball up there whirling around. Other people thought the Russians were going to put people up there and shoot at us from the space capsule. So anyway, he came home then and started really doing intensive work in Washington and, and drafted a bill. He and Senator Hill got together and worked on that before Congress convened. I think Sputnik went up in October and Congress convened in January and they were able to get a bill crafted that just the language of what we thought we would do by, I think it was March when we got it introduced and went from there, but hold, held hearings. And, uh, and to this point, there had been no money for education for the general public outside of the GI Bill. That's why this was groundbreaking, yes? Never before right. had the federal government taken up it upon itself to help That's individuals right. go to college. That's right. Of course, he all, Carl always looked on education in, in many aspects, of course, but uh, that it was an investment and that, that the country needed the brain power developed of all people and that, that we don't know how brains get distributed. The poor folks get some and rich people get some, and, but we ought to educate all of it. And if we invest in people, then there's a return to the country. And I, I think I reminded you that uh, we just had an article from the New York Times not long ago from uh, Mike Bloomberg, who's now running for president. His story is really interesting. He was a very poor child. His father was a bookkeeper, and he said he never made more than $6,000 a year. Well, here comes Mike Bloomberg with his brain, and he wanted to go to college, and he got a national defense education loan. He wrote this in the New York Times. I read it. And he, out of uh, when he graduated, he could only pay back $5 a month to pay back his loan, but he paid it back. He has now given, he's got a whole foundation full of, you know, charitable work that he does on all kinds of issues, but he has given four billion, that's B with a B billion, 
to Johns Hopkins University, which is his alma mater, he's given $4 billion of his earnings, and that's 300 times almost more than the whole National Defense Education Act cost. It, it, the, if you added everything in NDEA, it was a billion dollars, a little over a billion. And Mr. Bloomberg is just the most famous example of the many, many, many individuals that I'm sure you and Congressman Elliott met over the years oh, of yeah. people who oh, never yeah. would have seen the yeah. door of a university yeah. if yeah. not for that piece of legislation. And they are everywhere. A wonderful book has just been written by a professor, a woman at uh, Duke University, and she interviewed me a couple of times in this book, but uh, she was writing about minorities and women in college. And if you think about it, you had the GI Bill. Well, not many women were in the service in, in uh, World War II. Uh, so that benefited a lot of veterans that got a college education that would not have had otherwise. But, but uh, women and minorities were largely excluded from any kind of federal support. But now, with, and she concluded that the NDEA was the vehicle that opened the doors, that women now exceed the men's enrollment in colleges and universities across the country. So she said that was the door opener, and she gave Carl Elliott and Lister Hill a lot of credit and, and quoted them extensively in her book. So. Now, before we move on to the rest of Congressman Elliott's story, tell me about uh, your work for President Kennedy in the area of vocational education and how that came to be. Well, on the, in the, at the federal level, they have, since 1917, there had been a very small program called the Smith-Hughes Act. It was a federal act. And it created uh, vocational agriculture and uh, home economics for high schools because most of the kids in the country at that time were living in rural areas. And the assumption was that they were going to continue to be farmers and homemakers. And so that was a curriculum that was in the schools and a very, very good program. But it had, it had not grown to the extent that it needed to, and it had not included some industrial training that needed to be included. So he, Kennedy appointed a panel. They had 20-something uh, people, I think. But they were well-known people across the country, people that he depended on to give advice. And then the top-level people of the government, from the Department of Labor, Department of Commerce, and HEW, and put put them together, and worked, we worked for two years then to come up with a national program that expanded the vocational and technical education training across the country. Good bit of money increase into it. it the panel was chaired by Dr. Benjamin Willis, who was the su school superintendent in Chicago. So we went to the White House and delivered our product to the president, and about two weeks later, he was killed. And then uh, President Johnson, though, enacted the program, and so it was the Vocational Act of 1964, I think, had a half a billion dollars in it. So it, it extended, and it was a federal-state uh, partnership. The money went directly to state departments of education, and then they were allocated for vocational technical training. That was part one of our interview with Mary. Um, 
we took it right up to uh, through the successful years. Let's put it that way. Through um, all the different things that he did, and then the second half of our interview next week, we'll kind of go over. Um, he had two back-to-back losses: one to lose his congressional seat, one um, for governor against uh, George Wallace. Well, actually, Lurleen Wallace, but. Well, <laughs> substitute yeah. for George Wallace. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, we went through some of uh, some of that in this interview. And and I'll tell you, for me, um, he he almost still feels a little forgotten. You know, you see mm-hmm. his name on libraries, you see his house in um, some states of, mm-hmm. of disrepair. Um, you you know the name, you know he was from here, you know he represented. But I, I'm honest, if you were to build just a selfless public servant, someone that went to serve the people. I don't know that you would change anything from who he was, mm-hmm. like how he represented you. you don't, there, there's not a soul in Washington, D.C. right now that operates the way he did. No. I don't even know if you could survive operating mm-hmm. the way he did. He wanted to make the world a better place. He wanted to make the United States a better place, Alabama a better place, his district a better place. Mm-hmm. And I just I don't think that you're able to see that in, in modern Congress. Right. Um, so I don't know you're ever going to see it again. Um, we, we should really pay a lot of respect to what he was. It's so difficult to lead that way in this time and this place, in this age of social media and, and deals. And I think tough. a lot of it is, um, you know, what is the, the verse about the prophet having no honor in his own country or whatever. Um, I think there was a lot of kind of bad feelings in the generation before us. He was just seen, I hate to say it, but he was seen as a, bit of a loser he lost and we were very pro george wallace and he was taking on george wallace and the things that george wallace was saying so we don't like to back quote unquote losers yeah um so that's a little bit why you can grow up in this county i didn't know his story till i started here i learned it way better uh, a few years ago it would have been his 100th birthday and i did a series of articles on him which is how i met mary for the first time um, but we actually got this listener request from someone who didn't know his story, I think, and she said until she went off into the University of Alabama. Yeah. And his story was told a little bit more to her down there than it ever was growing up, you know, being here in Walker County. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that, a little bit of that going on. And it's sad, but it's true. I think that's a little bit why if he had, you know, maybe been a governor or uh, held some more popular opinions, that kind yep. of a thing. I think we would be talking about him in fourth grade history classes. Uh, but, you know, uh, winners get to tell the version of history, and yeah. his is an uncomfortable one. Yeah, It's an uncomfortable one. It so. certainly is. But um, it, I would tell you, you find me anyone that retires out of Washington, D.C. right now broke, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll show you an honest man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're That's not, the truth. You're not going to find that guy anymore. That's so the truth. If for nothing else, uh, we've got to pay a tremendous amount of respect to know that he was never in it for himself, obviously. Mm-hmm. And if he was in it for himself, he was He terrib- did it wrong. He was terrible at being in it for himself. <laughs> he did it quite wrong. <laughs> uh, so we hope you enjoyed that part one. This is a little different for us, but the interview, I think, was roughly an hour, a little over an hour or something like that. And so we just thought um, it, it had a clean break there right in the middle. So we'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Mary Jolly. It's spoiler alert. They actually let me talk in that one. You'll hear Drew some more. Left on Red is a DME Media Production. Copyright 2020, Daily Mountain Eagle.